Well, hello there, my happy little ramblers, and welcome to Reese Rambles once more. Another week, week uh, 49, ramble number 49. This is 49 weeks in a row. Isn't that fantastic? That's quite the achievement. Not long now until the full year, in fact, a full uh, one year streak. That's uh, I'm not quite sure how we're going to celebrate that, but I'm sure I'll think of something. But um, yeah, Reese Rambles, the official podcast of Control Alt Reese. How are you all doing? Welcome to the weekend. I know quite a few of you people have uh, told me that uh, this has become an important part of your weekend weekend routine, uh, Friday night routine and uh, Saturday morning. So uh, really glad to be a part of that and uh, very grateful for that. So thank you. That's very, that's very nice of you uh, to listen to my uh, my ramblings uh, on, a, on a weekly basis. Very good of you. This is actually take two of this ramble. Uh, I won't go into the reasons why I'm doing it all again, but um, the first one didn't come out quite how I wanted it. So there we go. Let's uh, let's rattle through. And the first thing I wanted to talk about is uh, actually a bit of an apology. And uh, I know serious stuff, serious stuff. Because uh, I've, I've said some regrettable things in a recent instalment of uh, of this podcast, and I just wanted to clear things up really with my listeners and, and just kind of uh, offer a very heartfelt and sincere apology to them. So uh, yeah, here goes. Um, bingo isn't just for old people. All right, I know, I know. I said that last week. I may have heavily implied that uh, bingo was an old people's pastime. Of course it isn't. It's had a, a big resurgence in recent years, and a lot of younger people are enjoying the old British tradition of bingo. I think it's uh, also spread beyond our shores to other countries, but I've always thought of it as a particularly uh, British thing. But um, yeah, apparently um, apparently um, people got offended that uh, I said that bingo was an old people's game. So apologies for that. That was, that was very uh, very rude of me to say. So there we go. With that cleared up, um, I suppose we should just elaborate a little bit more on the, the world of meat bingo, which is what, of course, uh, prompted this whole conversation in the first place. If you went around last week, um, my wife and I drive past a village hall on a regular basis that has a sign outside that says meat bingo tonight at 7pm, I think it says. And we were kind of just pondering the, the the very nature of meat bingo and what it was. And of course, it's bingo and you win prizes of meat. It's not complicated. And a few people have got in touch, uh, just sharing their experiences with the world of meaty prizes, um, particularly meat raffles, which is another one that I hadn't come across. But uh, apparently it's really big. It's a really big thing in the UK. And if you're familiar with the concept of a raffle, which is basically where you buy a ticket and then if your number comes up, you win a prize, um, it's that, but with meat. Prizes of meat, which of, of course is a fantastic thing, uh, as always. Uh, also, someone else mentioned uh, meat sellers at car boot sales. Of course, a car boot sale, another big British, uh, big British cultural phenomenon where everyone pulls up their cars into a big field every Sunday morning. It's at some ungodly hour, which is why I haven't been to one for a very long time, because I don't get up early on Sundays. And, um, you know, they, they, they sell off all their old tat for next to nothing and a very big British institution. You've probably seen some of uh, Nostalgia Nerds videos on that, maybe. But uh, yeah, they have people in vans selling meat at uh, at car boot sales. And my wife, I actually mentioned this to Catherine, and um, of course she works in the world of meat production. And she said that... Um, Obviously, her company, I do work for this company as well as a contractor, but uh, not that's important. I always have to mention that. But uh, she said that, that her company provide the all the big supermarkets, so Tesco and Sainsbury's and um, Aldi, and that uh, these supermarkets have requirements on the, the, the stock that they will accept from them, in their case, bacon. 
And of course, if bacon, if the bacon has too short of a date on it, of course, it takes the supermarkets a certain amount of time to sort of get the stuff through their distribution and out onto the shelves. And then customers need a certain amount of time to uh, obviously buy it and take it home and store it and cook it and whatever else. So the part of the specification is that it has to have three weeks worth of shelf shelf life on it. And you'd think that, uh, you'd think that actually they'd, they'd just be a bit sneaky and just sort of change the dates, but uh, they, they, they don't. It's, it's all, you know, it's full, uh, you know, traceability all the way back to the farm, from the farm to the shelf kind of thing. That's actually the system that I work on, uh, you know, that kind of deals with all of that stuff. And um, yeah, the, uh, you know, if there are less than three weeks worth of uh, shelf life on the bacon, then the supermarkets refuse to accept it. And there are companies that are actually specifically set up to take this short, sh short, shorter shelf life meat and and pass it on in other ways and, and put it through their own distribution network. And part of that is it going to these sellers that do this meat, these meat bingo things and meat raffles and meat car boot stands and um, all the rest of it. So yeah, that is the uh, that is the meaty distribution network that uh, leads to these meaty prizes. And indeed, outside of the UK, uh, apparently meat bingo is a thing in America. Um, I did find some evidence of that actually after I recorded last week's episode when I was looking for something to put in the thumbnail. And uh, there was one that was being run by uh, like, a, like a radio station in America somewhere, which was quite interesting. And I've also had a Canadian point out that a meat shoot is a thing. Not like a not like a shoot, like a C-H-U-T-E, uh, but a shoot, S-H-O-O-T, with guns. Um, yeah, apparently it's a target uh, target shooting thing, and you shoot at the targets, and the person who scores the most points by being the most accurate and shooting the most targets wins prizes of meat. So a meat shoot. Now that is a new one on me. I uh, don't know if anyone else has come across that one, but um, hopefully that's all the meaty bases covered, uh, as well as the apology for the bingo lovers in the audience. And uh, yeah, to uh, I think to uh, repent for that sin, I might uh, I might have to go and uh, play a game of uh, bingo down at the old uh, the local gala with all the other youngins as we all are nowadays. So that's that. And uh, yeah, I think uh, let's uh, let's move swiftly on to our first topic of the week. So many of you out there will be listening on Spotify, of course, and that is indeed the platform that I use to upload these as well. It used to be Anchor FM, and then it was acquired by Spotify, and they turned it into Spotify for podcasters. And then I, um, I basically export just the audio from these and upload it there, and it gets pushed out to Apple Music and Google Podcasts and a few other platforms that I don't even know their names of. But um, yeah, all good stuff. And one thing that it always asks me when I upload them is, do I want a user poll? Uh, do I want user feedback on this episode? I, I always completely ignore the option. I just leave it on, which is the default. I didn't realise that people could send me messages through it. And someone's actually done that this week, which is actually quite cool. Um, so I'm going to leave it on and I'm actually going to encourage people to use it if you want to uh, sort of comment on things. Because I, I, I mean, I listen to podcasts on Spotify constantly and I had no idea that this was a thing. But someone's actually used it to send some feedback, and it's very good feedback. It's a really good update on a story that I covered uh, last week. So let's uh, let's just elaborate on that a little bit further. And this is from uh, Mike Mimo. Mike Mimo. And Mike says, is the RM800XL dead? There was a C&D in April 23, but in December, the group posted a video of the prototype firing into life for the first time. And I was completely unaware of this, and I was really interested to, to go and check this out. And if you're not familiar with, with the RM800XL, which uh, Mike is talking about, I will, uh, I will just briefly cover that again. So it was a, an attempt to uh, recreate the uh, Atari 800XL. 
made by a group from Poland called Revive Machines, and it looked really, really cool. I don't know if these are pictures of an actual finished unit on the website. They're probably just, just renders. I did have some other feedback from people because I'd kind of said that it was all ready for production and I did have some feedback from some other people saying that uh, it was all just uh, a pipe dream and actually they hadn't really achieved anything. Uh, it turns out that it turns out we were both wrong uh, and actually they are still working on it. And this is this seems quite risky but uh, there we go. So there is a video, it's a 17 second long video on their official YouTube channel. It's called RM800XL, it's alive and it shows a prototype, it looks like quite a, maybe quite a final looking motherboard, plugged into a monitor. And someone switches the power switch on the side and it boots up, I guess. Well, yeah, it kind of loads up like a test pattern on the screen. And then, uh, yeah, it just ends on coming soon. A very ominous looking message that's kind of uh, fading in and, and zooming at the bottom of the screen, which is really exciting on the one hand. Um, but on the other hand, of course, they had this cease and desist and they were supposed to stop this project uh, from, from Retro Games Limited, who are, of course, making the new Atari 400 Mini. Uh, obviously, there's a bit of a con conflict of interest of there, there and uh, they've got the contract with Atari to make the 8-bit uh, machines, the modern recreations of the 8-bit machines. So, of course, they'd want to stop a competing project, even though I don't necessarily agree with the heavy-handed tactics and stuff. But there we go. It's a thing. Uh, but yeah, it seems the project isn't actually dead, and um, they are uh, they are still actively developing this thing, which is really interesting. But yeah, the other interesting part being the uh, the feedback from Spotify, which of course I didn't even know was a thing. And also that that raises another topic, uh, which I kind of wanted to talk about, uh, which this segues into quite nicely. Uh, so let's talk about that as well. So if you cast your mind back to last week's ramble, I know it seems like a very long time ago now, but uh, yeah, at the end of that, I mentioned that I had to rush off to take my car for its MOT, which of course is the, the annual safety check thing that we do here in the UK every year. And I did speculate that it was going to probably fail because it's quite old and it's got lots of miles uh, on the clock and, and uh, all of that. And uh, yeah, to, to, to cut a very long story short, uh, it, it did fail and it needs some work to get it through that. Just a new rear coil spring, which I wasn't expecting. Apparently it's cracked, but um, it doesn't seem to affect the handling or anything, which is a bit a bit odd, but there you go. And more importantly, two new front tyres. Apparently the tread is quite low on those and um, I'm just going to get those done because it's quite icy and, and horrible out for the next, uh, at least the next few weeks. And I don't want to be driving around on that sort of nearly bold tyres and end up in a ditch. So, um, yeah, that's the thing. But that's the reason I had to rush off and get everything wrapped up very quickly last week. And why I actually missed this story, and you'll see how it relates to the previous one uh, in a second, because th this was on my list and I really wanted to talk about this, but I wanted to kind of, I wanted to sort of speculate and go into a bit more detail. So I decided to put it on hold and just wait until this week, as there was plenty of other Atari stuff to cover. But now is the time. And I'm actually going to do, I'm hoping to get another another video recorded while I'm here today, just talking about all of these new Atari machines and what they are and how they all kind of fit into the grand scheme of things. Because there's so many of them now. Um, even I'm struggling to keep up and I'm a massive Atari fanboy. And I know a lot of people come here to, uh, to learn the latest Atari news and whatnot. So... Um, yeah, um, I'm going to try and see if I can sort of uh, do a bit of a roundup in a video and make sense of it all. But um, yeah, the, the the other new the other 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 new Atari that I'm talking about is of course, or perhaps not of course, the uh, Atari Game Station Portable. Now this was revealed at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which was uh, uh, just a few weeks ago, and 
it's it's made by a company called My Arcade, who've worked with Atari in the past on other machines, particularly handhelds and things. They've done licensed handhelds for things like Tetris and Pac-Man and stuff as well. Um, quite big in that world, and from what I gather, make uh, quite uh, decent quality hardware, so that's good to hear. But this thing is really weird. So this has a built-in paddle and trackball controllers, as uh, time extension are reporting here. Uh, but also the other thing that I've spotted is that it has a numeric keypad <laughs> on the front as well. Uh, something that the uh, Atari Jaguar was kind of mocked for back in the day. Uh, but yeah, the, of course the 5200 had the keypad controller, uh, as did the Jaguar. And of course the 2600, there were some, there were some keypad controllers available for, for that console as well. So quite a, quite a wide range of Atari games actually support that. And perhaps not such a silly thing to include after all. But yeah, the, the big headlines around this, uh, of course, focus on the paddle and the trackball. Uh, the paddle, of course, rotary spinner type controller. Back in the day, um, it was uh, quite common. Of course, Atari's very first arcade game was uh, Pong, or at least the uh, first game released under the Atari brand was Pong back in 1972. That, of course, had the two rotary controllers. And with all the table tennis and tennis and hockey and football clone machines that came out that were essentially exactly the same game. Of course, they all used spinner controllers because they worked really well for that style of game. And then we had we had some later stuff like Tempest and, and stuff like that. And even driving games, of course, you can use the rotary controller as, as like a spinning wheel, a, a steering wheel, um, you know, as a, a spinner, a kind of analog um, you know, positional controller. They work really well for that. So quite a cool controller. And um, yeah, a control scheme that's kind of fallen out of fashion with, with, with recent consoles and things. It's not something you see anymore, which is, I guess it's to be expected because it, it does have quite limited use and it's not quite as versatile as a, an analog thumbstick or whatever, but um, a very welcome return, a very odd return in a handheld. And I say handheld, but this thing's got a seven inch screen. So it's like, it's going to be like switch sized almost, I guess. It's going to be a big thing. Um, which is good because obviously it has to fit all of those controls on it as well. It's also got a D-pad uh, and yes, the, the aforementioned uh, trackball as well, which of course many of us will remember from 1980s and 90s laptops. Um, very big, you can still get them. A lot of people still use them instead of a mouse. You have it on your desk and you, you, know, you can use it to control your mouse cursor and stuff. Um, but in this case, of course, it's to support all those wonderful old arcade games from Atari. Which uh, which use the uh, the trackball controller stuff like Missile Command and uh, Centipede and, and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's got all bases covered. Uh, it's a big thing. I don't think they've announced any games. They haven't announced a price or anything. They basically just sort of had it on static display. Um, you know, show people uh, basically what the hardware looks like. Um, it just says that it comes with some pre-installed games and that. Uh, yeah, seven inch high resolution screen, re rechargeable battery built in, of course. I guess that'll recharge over USB-C. But not much, not much information on that. Uh, of course, uh, my arcade also make the uh, the game station uh, thing, which is something that I do want to talk about as well. That's another recent Atari console that's passed me by, <laughs> and some mini arcade machines and all sorts of stuff. So really cool looking project, and just something that I wanted to acknowledge uh, because yeah, it, it's yet another yet another new. Atari, or at least Atari branded console, an officially licensed thing, and it's odd. It's odd. I like it. Anyway, let's take a moment to talk about me. Yes, this is all about me after all. 
because I'm fantastic and I love talking about myself. No, because I have a new video out this week on my main channel on Control Alt Reese, a video that's done amazingly well and I'm really, really proud of it and I'm very pleased with it. And it's one that's been quite a long time in the making. So it's really good, really promising start to 2024. And that video is my PC9821, uh, which is a computer that I bought from Japan, from Bai, hashtag not sponsored. Um, from the, obviously it works as a as a forwarding service for the Japanese auction sites like Yahoo Auctions, which is still really big over there. And I bought this thing and it was very badly packaged, which is very unusual for stuff from Japan, but I've learned my lesson and I will be paying for the protective packaging in future. Uh, although that said, I did buy a second one, as you'll see in the video, and that did have all the extra protective, protective packaging and that also got damaged. So... Yeah, unlucky there, I guess, but um, probably the only things I've ever bought from Bayi that actually got damaged. So there you go. It's an interesting part of the story and you can see how I actually fixed that damage in the video. But I also took the opportunity. So this is this is a longer video. This is getting on for half an hour long. And I also took the opportunity to talk about the history of the NEC PC-88 and PC-98 ranges of computers and how they started with the 8001 and the 6001 and, you know, the 8801, 9801. I'm, I'm just saying numbers now, but... Uh, and they, these, were, these were machines that I knew absolutely nothing about. Of course, I knew they were weird and Japanese and made by NEC and that they were quite well known for sort of their, their graphics and sound and, and being sort of early pioneers in the Japanese gaming scene. But that, that was it, really. I was just, it was just kind of a passing familiarity. I kind of assumed that they were just PCs, but the Japanese version of PCs, so not quite compatible, but basically. But apparently that's not the case. Uh, PC-88 was Z80 based, the same as the, um, like the Spectrum, for example. So very much an 8-bit machine, but with a very, a very sort of sophisticated graphics um, chip on board for, for reasons, uh, those reasons being the Japanese language and how complicated it is to actually render. And uh, of course, uh, that, that kind of graphical power being used for games, as people do. And how that relates to the PC-98, which I assumed was like a, like a sequel or a follow-up to the 88, but it turns out that they were actually sold pretty much, you know, it was only released a year later and they were sold alongside each other and one was kind of targeted at home users and one was targeted at business users and they actually both ended up becoming quite sort of legendary games machines um but yeah yeah just a really fascinating story obviously don't have to go over it all again here the video's there if you want to go and watch it i'm sure most of you have probably already watched it um but uh, yeah i think the cool thing about this video is just how well it's done and like i say i'm really impressed with that i'm really pleased with that so just looking at the overview in uh, in youtube studio uh, this did 5,000 views in its first 24 hours, which is a new record for my channel. Uh, really, really cool to see. Um, it, like I say, it was, it was a huge amount of work to put it together, so it's nice that that's kind of paid off. And obviously January is kind of a quieter month for YouTube anyway, because the, all the big guys are work themselves to death in December, chasing all the ad revenue from all the uh, people trying to flog stuff for Christmas. And the advertisers also, uh, you know, they cut right back on spending in January and, and, and those bigger guys kind of stop putting out videos. So for people like me who are kind of looking to get our faces out there and get our names out there and, and kind of grow our channels, really good time to, to get some stuff out. Um, not a great time for ad revenue, but that's not why I do it. So yeah, 5,000 views in 24 hours. Uh, it says here views are up 46%. Um, I don't have any sort of past statistics to compare that to. And this video, if I look at the reach, has been shoved in front of 76,000 people's faces. And uh, yeah, you know, apparently 4.7% of them have uh, clicked through thanks to my thumbnail there. Little, little tiny bit of trickery on the thumbnail, I'll say. I, I did boost the uh, saturation and uh, the contrast a little bit on the more yellowed machine just to make it look a little bit more yellow. But um, 
actually it is, it is very yellow and you'll see that in the video so it's not all that deceptive it's just uh, I, I didn't cover it in mud or anything like that so I hope you can, I hope you can forgive me for that and I think the retentions the retention on this one is very strong so the amount of people actually watching the video through to the end um, it says here's uh, it's 58 percent um, which is after after the first 30 seconds but then it actually sort of continues at that level as, as like a flat line across to the end so I actually didn't lose um you know, many of those initial viewers over the course of the video, which meant it was a very engaging video. And um, I'm always really pleased to see a retention graph like that, particularly once once it's reached quite a high number of views like this. So really, really promising feedback on this video. Um, I've had a, a lot of good comments. There was some debate. Um, there was some debate around the level of IBM compatibility of this machine. Um, I think the, the, the PC98 range is known for being sort of, sort of IBM compatible, but not um, and uh, obviously, people are kind of under the impression that um, you know that that was, that that was kind of the case throughout the machine's lifetime. When actually, this much later machine is much more kind of, especially as it runs Windows ninety five, and you've got that extra level of abstraction between the hardware and the software, and you know you can just run Windows ninety five software on it. So, for all intents and purposes, it, it is basically just a PC. Uh, but of course, it isn't. Uh, the, the term IBM compatible has a lot of sort of connotations to do with hardware being at specific memory addresses and, and stuff like that when it comes to running uh, just basic vanilla DOS. So there's been a little bit of discussion around that but to be fair out of a whole half an hour video um, you know if, if it's just one kind of uh, one kind of off-the-cuff cuff comment that I made at one point in the video um, you know if that's the biggest nitpick that people can, can come up with and like I say it's not really a nitpick it's just kind of a talking point uh, then that's cool that's very good evidently yeah, goes to show that uh, I've done my homework on that one so uh, yeah and you know all, all the research that I did was worth it so very cool that really, really pleased with that video uh, please do go and check it out if you haven't if you haven't seen it yet I think you'll find it very interesting viewing I hope you do and yeah great start to the year I hope that's I hope that's a sign of things to come for 2024 uh, for the control alt Reese channel so if you're listening to this or indeed watching this on YouTube, you're probably a fan of old computers as I am um, because that's what I cover on my channel, mainly old computers and old games consoles to, uh, to a lesser extent. And yeah, when it comes to old computers, <laughs> I think they don't get much older than this. And it was really cool to see this in the news again uh, this week. So uh, this is to do with Colossus at the National Museum of Computing. Uh, in Bletchley Park, of course. Bletchley Park during World War II uh, played a really big part in intercepting and um, decrypting com enemy communications. And a big part of that was Colossus, the world's first electronic computer, which was, of course, designed and built specifically for the purpose of breaking those those encrypted messages. And it did. And um, apparently uh, helped to shorten the war um, as a result, which is good. Um, obviously, it saved a lot of, uh, a lot of hassle. And... <laughs> And yeah, um, the, 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 basically, uh, you can go and see this thing. It, it actually works. I'm not quite sure how often they run it. I have been down, and I don't think it, I don't think it was up and running the day that I was there. Uh, this was before I had my YouTube channel, so I didn't make a video about it. But um, they certainly do run it on, on on specific days and keep it maintained and stuff, which is really cool considering the age of this thing. I mean, this thing date, dates back to um, you know the early 1940s, um, before microchips and, and transistors and the rest of it so it's all valve based I think it's built around it was built around like um, phone exchange technology uh, I think um, if, if I've got my story right but um, 
The story is all here on the uh, National Museum of Computing uh, website, and of course I will link to that. But the, uh, the the new development with this, which which was really cool this week, which was I actually spotted this on the BBC News website, is that GCHQ, uh, the intelligence intelligence military uh, military intelligence people here. Um, have declassified some old pictures, some old photos of it actually in operation uh, way back in the day. Of course, this was a big military secret back in the day. We couldn't let, couldn't let them know that we actually had this technology. And uh, I'm glad they've saved it until 2024 because you wouldn't want this falling into the wrong hands. <laughs> this, this sophisticated code-breaking technology. But I mean, you laugh, but uh, it, it, was, it was really re revolutionary in its day. And it's just nice to see, uh, see you know, how it was set up back when it was actually being used. And um, we've got the, the actual operators here operating the computer. It used uh, like, you know, paper tape and stuff in combination with all, all the good old fashioned switches and knobs and things that you'd expect. Operated by women, of course, because all the men were out at war at the time, um, as everything that was kind of, kind of run in this country at the time. Which is really, it's nice to see. It's nice to see an old picture of that and, and just kind of see it uh, Acknowledged uh, members of the uh, the uh, Women's Royal Navy Service, of course, the Wrens, as they were famously known, um, not only actually operating the machine but also maintaining it as well. Um, you know, dealing with the day-to-day -day running of it. Of course, this this thing's massively complex, and it is you know you, valve technology and stuff. I mean, it, it it must have broken down all the time, and it was it was essential to the war effort to keep this thing running. So, you know, my hats off to these people for uh, for their sort of contribution to to all of that really nice to see the pictures and they've also released uh, you know diagrams of uh, you know block diagrams of how the actual machine worked and how it all fit together as well so really cool a really good story here on the bbc news website just covering the history of it a little bit like i say there's a bit more on the national museum of computing website which i'll also link in the usual places um but yeah cool to see a very important part of our computing history and uh, nice to see some more uh, information and pictures of that coming out after all these years. And that's all I have for this week's ramble. Uh, thank you ever so much for joining me once more. I can't believe another week has gone by and we're one week closer to the year-long unbroken streak. I wonder how many of you have been with me since the very beginning. Maybe let me know down in the comments or um, yeah, via Spotify, apparently. Uh, yeah, you know, if, if you're uh, desperately holding on for the next three weeks, uh, to see if I make it to my one-year streak. I'm actually going away as well, so I'm kind of working out how to uh, how best to handle that. So it might be quite an interesting episode <laughs> right right at the end of it all. But um, we'll uh, we'll we'll see how that uh, how that pans out. Um, I would hate for it to be uh, some kind of disappointment of a, a two-minute thing um, into a handheld mic, just saying, "Yeah, sorry guys, I'm away this week, so I can't uh, can't do a proper episode." Oh, by the way, it's been a whole year. That, that's not how you end a streak, is it? We, we need to go out in uh, we need to go out in style, and you know we, we need a party and a celebration. Um, yeah, and on that note, there, there was just something, just a little, um, a little food for thought that I, I kind of wanted to, uh, to to talk about and just uh, kind of had a little, have a little think about. And if you're a regular viewer of this, a regular viewer of my channel, you might be familiar with my friend Sam. In fact, there's a picture of him on the wall behind me when we used to be in a band together, which I've actually made part of my set. And uh, yeah, um, uh, he was in my uh, my Christmas special video, uh, 2022. Didn't do one in 2023 because I was trying to take things a little bit more seriously and couldn't really come up with a good concept and stuff. But um, yeah, he was in that video where we drank a lot of wine. It was quite amusing. Uh, helped me to get this place set up. He, uh, you know, is involved with the landlord and the IT company and all the other stuff. Um, and earlier this week, he gave me a present. 
and I, I was wondering if anyone else had kind of come across this thing. So it is this. It's called Impossibrew, and it's an alcohol-free beer. Now I'm 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 not doing dry January as such, um, but I do always drink a bit too much in December, and I do I do tend to um, you know cut it cut it right back in January. <laughs> I'm not a bit, I'm not a big drinker anyway, but. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, people doing the alcohol-free thing. I don't usually drink alcohol-free beer. If, if I drink beer, it's you know, as a social thing to you know get a bit tipsy and stuff. And um, you know, if I'm not drinking to get drunk, I'll just have a cup of tea or something. To be honest, I'm, I'm kind of boring like that. But I was very interested to see this, particularly on the social side of things, because it apparently has these nootropic. I'm going to say drugs. I don't know if drugs is the right word. Herbs. <laughs> they call it their um, they call it their social blend, and it's got L-theanine, um, ashwag ashwagandha, which I think is some kind of like root or bark or something from Africa, uh, and vitamin B1, and apparently oh herbs. That's a good word. Nootropic herbs. That's got or nootropic is it herbs, and um, yeah, um, our social blend aims to replace alcohol with a relaxing drinking experience that's totally alcohol free. And it's supposed to sort of loosen you up and make you relaxed and make you more sociable and that kind of stuff like alcohol does. And I drank this. I, I just had the one and I drank it while I was playing uh, I was playing Talos Principle 2, actually. And yeah, I don't know. Not quite sure what to make of it, really. Um, it, I think it had some kind of effect, although whether, whether that's like a placebo effect or what, I don't know. Um, maybe you need to drink a lot more of them to, 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 to get the promised effects. But um Apparently this is a big thing. I was kind of vaguely aware of it, I guess. Um, but yeah, apparently this was a thing and was on Dragon's Den and all of that. Um, I just thought it sounded quite interesting. So yeah, has anyone else tried this? Is anyone going to go out and try it now as a result of, of me talking about it? Tasted a bit weird, um, the beer, I must say. Had the uh, the pale ale. I, I do like an ale, but um, yeah, very very kind of, kind of herbal, I guess. Not unpleasant, but just, just different. Um, but there you go, that's a thing. And of course, I will link to that as well. So that's that's all I've got for you this week. Um, you know, if you wanted a talking point to talk about it down in the comments, uh, that, that, that that's the best I can come up with. So I'm off to film another video, hopefully about Atari consoles, if I don't run out of time and get interrupted, as it seems to keep happening today. Uh, thank you ever so much, of course. Big shout out to Sam, who will be listening to me in the shower, like he always does. Hello, Sam. I hope the uh, Christmas party went well and that you're not too hungover. And uh, yeah, that's all I got. So um, bye.